Three Practice Mamas is a podcast that is on a mission to transform our country. We tell the stories that matter, celebrate the power and hope of pissed off mamas who are building a better future for all our children. Hi, I'm Muna Husseini. And I'm Christina Sinsun Ramirez. I'm Martha Pincoffs. Thank you all for joining us for Three Righteous Mamas podcast. So let's talk about our plans for the upcoming holidays. What do y'all got going on for Thanksgiving? Gonna wear a mask and eat turkey outside. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to tell y'all, I love, love Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving because it is about food and there is no pressure of gifts. It's just coming together and having an awesome Thanksgiving. Now I know that a lot of folks are sick, maybe have lost their jobs or also can't get together fully with their families. So I wanna recognize that it's a a tough time for folks. Here at our house, we are also eating outdoors. Um, I have like a full feast menu plan from tamales to uh, homemade tofurkey which is totally the best Mexican vegan Thanksgiving anyone could have, (laughs) which is why I also love Thanksgiving because it blends all of the traditions, right? Um, My Mexican side and my uh, gringa vegan vegan side as well. So I'm really, really excited about it. I have so many plans, but I don't want to tell you all of them. Muna, what are you doing? I have a little bit of a confession. I don't like turkey but it's okay because you know what we make at my house? What do you make? De la Surea. Leg of lamb. Oh, that's right. Feel jealous. That's people. right. And maybe, maybe Martha's jealous. I'm not jealous, but. <laughs> Vegan's not jealous of the baby animal. Ends up with like the bone at the end. And I think everyone gives it to him because of the way he like eats it and like immerses himself in it. It's like theatrical for my family to watch. It's like a thing that happened every year since we've been married, since we've gone home. And so my, yeah, that's, that's what's going down. But otherwise we're a big football family. We watch the game. Usually it's like the Cowboys, you know, everyone's just like on the sofa, just, yeah. Football. Mm. Are you doing football with Martha? I am a non-football loving dyke. I <laughs> I just, I just, like, I'm going to break stereotypes right now. I'm going <laughs> to rupture all your ideas. I am. I am. I don't drink beer or watch football. Um, but I do cook a bomb turkey and am excited. We will be in the backyard and we're going to watch a movie outside. That's our, our thing. Um, and if it's cold enough, we may have a little fire. Well, it's going to be 80 degrees here in Texas. So not so going to have a fire, but what movie are you watching? Hmm. Probably Joe and I will get to pick. So we may go like E.T. or something like that. Classic. Nice. Mm-hmm. I just saw Muna get really excited about that one. My new favorite, Santi Susanti has turned three. And he's now old enough to actually do Christmas and holiday stuff. So we're getting ready for Christmas right after Thanksgiving. So we got matching Christmas PJs. Because this child is only going to be young enough once to actually think this shit is cool. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So we've got matching Christmas PJs. We're going to watch Home Alone. um, And we're going to bake cookies. And then we've made, we started to make like crafts that we're going to give away for Christmas. So I'm like very, very, very excited. And we also go on a 10 mile run every Thanksgiving. We do do that. That is tradition last like five years, seven years, because then you can eat as much as you want. And then the last thing I'll say is, I don't know if people follow me on Instagram, you may know that this past week, I also thought it would be very cool to get matching overalls with my son, except I bought them used online on eBay and they were maternity overalls. (laughs) Everyone suggested that I keep them because I can eat as much as I want on Thanksgiving. So thank you for the suggestions, everyone. Some of us are going to eat as much as we want on Thanksgiving without running, like, at all. So that permission is also out there. It's true. I will not it's run elastic pants and do you. Yeah, I can. I hope a lot of people get maternity overalls and <laughs> it'll be a new thing. Not going to lie. I wore my maternity pants for a long time. 
after I was no longer in maternity. I have fallen in love with the sweatpant over the um, pandemic. I have really like oh yeah embraced the sweatpant in a way that I never used to. I used to call them quitters because my friend Jamie said that if you wore your sweatpants in public, you had quit on life. <laughs> Did you see that tweet where um, I think there was like a series of tweets of, um, you know, those darn things those kids say. And it was one kid saying something like, why do I have to wear leg prisons? And he was talking about pants. <laughs> and I thought, yes, this kid is on something. Oh, someone's child. Oh, it's a kid. I want to see who it is. I know. Me too. Oh, hi. Hey. I like your Batman shirt. And there's the ground. We lost uh, Muna. Muna was disconnected by her kid. Her son was like, we're done with this. Nope. So child sabotage of three righteous mamas, which is something I too have experienced. So there's no judgment here on this show. In fact, your own child may be sabotaging you right now from listening to three righteous mamas. <laughs> That's right. It happens to me all day long. It doesn't matter what meeting I'm in or who I'm talking to. And it could be like my CEO, my son will come in and just like slap my camera. And it goes I love it. I was like, Hey, Oh, and then we were gone and we were cut. But, um, I'm really excited about y'all, your all's Thanksgivings. They sound amazing. And, um, I'm guessing a lot of people that are listening are also going to have some, uh, potentially heated, debates and conversations around the Thanksgiving table. Um, and our next guest, I think can help folks think about how to handle some of those tough conversations and be able to find common ground. So um, are you all ready for our guest? My friend. Welcome everybody to our show. We are so excited. Today we have Heather McGee with us. And I would say she is one of the most brilliant voices in our country today on issues of race, class, and democracy. You've probably seen her on M MSNBC or NBC testifying before Congress or regularly speaking alongside people like Senator Elizabeth Warren or Robert Wright. Previously, she served as the president of Demos, one of the nation's most critical institutions, conducting cutting edge policy research and litigation to build a democracy that's truly for all of us. And I am so excited about her new book. Everyone has to order it. Um, it will change your life. And it's not even out yet, but I know it will based on everything I've ever heard this woman speak about um, or write about. It's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, and how we can prosper together. You can order it now for pre-order at bookshop.org. And you can catch her regular brilliance on Twitter at hmcgee, or learn more about some of her upcoming podcasts she has coming out at heathermcgee.org. Heather, welcome. We're so glad to be here with you. So glad to be with you, three righteous mamas. Yeah, well, now four. Because yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I'm really excited I belong. <laughs> yes, pretty much we mostly interview moms, but I actually wanted to ask you, so one of the first questions we often ask people about, and I know Heather and I know each other from um, other work previously, and I know that your mom is also a total righteous mama, mm. and I wanted you to tell me a little bit about how your mom influenced you to do the work that you're doing now, because obviously she has played a huge role in shaping you. That's such a good question. Thank you, Christina. Well, first of all, um, to all three of you, thank you for having me on. Thank you for doing this project. Um, my mom, um, her name is Dr. Gail Christopher, and she was working in social policy um, when I was growing up. Uh, actually, when I was born, she had an alternative healthcare practice you know, on the south side of Chicago and was, you know, talk about righteous, was like, you know, kind of like a back to the earth, you know, reject the, the, the dominant male white Western medicine 
um, you know, heal our community from within kind of activist doctor. Um, and then she kept kind of going kind of upstream and upstream from the physical ills that she was treating into more of the social ills and the social determinants of health. And by the time I was a teenager, she was fully into activism and public policy. And so I grew up, you know, asking questions about what was going on in our neighborhood and in society. And she would always give me very structural answers. You know, it was right. never about the individual, right? It was never about like charity or individual behavior. It was always about, well, these are the rules. This is how this is set up. This is what's going on. And that absolutely shaped me, obviously, um, because I knew pretty early on I wanted to help make better economic policy decisions um, to make our economy more fair. And I was really lucky to get an entry level job um, at Demos when I was 22. And then um, the rest is kind of history. I, I worked worked my way up the savage nonprofit ladder and, um, <laughs> um, and became president of the organization when I was 33 um, and left it to write this book, The Sum of Us, a few years ago. So speaking of that book, um, you know, you have a new TED Talk out, right? Yeah. That came out a few months ago that everyone should watch. We'll put the link in as well. That's um, really based on the premise also of your book. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about in the book how racism hurts all of us, including white folks, yeah. which most people don't talk about. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I the the beginning of the book starts with a question, which I'm sure has been on um, all three of your minds at some point in your life, which is, like, why can we just not have nice things? You know, why does why is our society so dysfunctional? Why yes, you know, and I'm not talking about like laundry that does itself. You know, I'm talking about like healthcare that everybody can afford and that's universal and like well-funded public schools in every neighborhood and, um, you know, jobs that keep full-time workers out of poverty and, you know, the whole like decent standard of living, quality of life, um, you know, functional representative government thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's certainly been the question that has motivated my career as I've worked in public policy around issues like workers' rights and wages, collective bargaining, student debt and college affordability, you know, the mortgage market, the credit market, before the financial crisis, um, democracy reform, why we have this like mountain of, of money in politics and why our democracy is so unresponsive and unequal. And I really, over the course of my almost 20 years working, you know, trying to bring spreadsheets to the problem, really, um, as a researcher and an advocate, uh, it occurred to me that I was maybe sort of in some ways barking up the wrong tree because I was thinking of these things, these sort of aspects of economic inequality as issues that exist because of class and government and politics. And then there's race and racism, which accelerates inequality for people of color. And I had a few light bulb moments that set me out on this journey I took over the past three years to write The Sum of Us, which um, made me think that maybe I was wrong, that in fact, racism was the driver of inequality for everyone, not inequality exists and is accelerated by racism. So I, I discovered that in many ways, all of the big sort of vexing problems in American society have their roots in racism, structural racism, um, as well as political and strategic racism today. Would you feel comfortable telling us about at least one of these aha moments you had, which helped you sort of change your lens and, and how you were approaching these problems you'd spent so much time researching? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so one of them was, um, I mean, in some ways the biggest one uh, was it, it sort of, a, unfolded in slow motion. So it was a, it was like a, a big, a big aha. Um, but over the course of the first decade of my career, the issue that I worked on the most intently was the issue of debt, credit card debt, mortgage debt, payday loans, um, later student debt, all of these phenomena that were just sort of 
growing and growing um, among working and middle-class families. And when it came to mortgages, particularly were targeted with just a ferocity um, in to black homeowners, um, black and brown, but particularly black homeowners. Um, and, you know, Washington didn't care and the bankers and the lenders were making money hand over fist. And it was this kind of profit machine that was enabled in so many ways by racism, both by the racism that created the segregated neighbor neighborhoods to allow for the targeting, by the racism that allowed there to have been, you know, generations of redlining and so that black families were, um, you know, sort of newer to, to mortgage lending, racism that was indifferent to the early signs when these mortgages were exploding on responsible homeowners, there was this sort of blaming of the victim, this sense that is still, I think, the dominant narrative. Um, you saw Mike Bloomberg, you know, talk about this in the Democratic primary for Pete's sake, you know, it's sort of like the financial crisis was brought to us by black and brown homeowners who, you know, got in over their heads, right? That was the narrative. And in fact, that's not true at all. And we saw it happening in slow motion, worked so hard. This is when I first met Elizabeth Warren, actually, was um, when we were, you know, all working on this issue, really trying to prevent what would become the financial crisis. And obviously, the impact of the financial crisis, um, which, you know, happened because of these subprime mortgages that were sort of spread across the financial markets and that companies were taking huge bets out on, um, you know, was far reaching across the globe. And what was clear to me from the front row seat that I had um, in the years in the run up to the crisis is that we wouldn't have had a financial crisis if it weren't for racism. And, you know, millions of white homeowners lost their homes, lost their jobs, you know, the cascading losses, you know, across not just the American economy, but the globe. Um, obviously greed was at play, but, you know, Racism is a fuel for greed. Racism gives the permission for greed. It greases the wheels for greed. Um, so that was in many ways, I mean, that experience of sort of watching in slow motion as this unfolds and seeing so many people just not be willing to put aside, you know, fundamentally racist stereotypes about, you know, black people and money. Um, in order to land the culpability at the feet of, you know, powerful, often white men who were at the helm of these lenders um, who were absolutely preying on responsible homeowners. Um, it taught me so much about the way that power works and the way that racism, you know, drives greed in ways that impacts us all. I, um, so I watched your TED talk today it's amazing. You have almost 2 million views, by the way. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I have not checked in a minute. Thank you. You're almost at 2 million. I bet you are by the end of this. Um, and so I arrived in this place of, of caring about structural change and being curious about it via the food system, hmm. um, which is similar in some ways. Hmm. I guess I think that all, all avenues lead to this place where we watch um, the people in power sacrifice the health and safety, particularly of communities of brown and black folks mm -hmm. um, at the expense of literally everyone else to preserve power. Mm -hmm. um, but in the food industry, the shape that takes is the, that our tax dollars go to pay for food that makes us sick. It doesn't make us well. Mm -hmm. um, and that serves the interest of the the special interests that go and, and ask for that and argue for that. And there's a tremendous weight that is borne um, by literally everybody else, but we're kept separate. We, we so often keep the conversation about class and race separate. Mm -hmm. um, that, that seems very intentional to me. And I love the way that in your TED talk, you um, kick down that wall and and, and I think that I don't know how it happens, but like somewhere we have to help people see that the united interest mm -hmm. is for us all to have the world for all of our children, right? The schools that serve them, the food systems that serve them, mm -hmm. financial systems that support and help achieve their dreams, mm -hmm. healthcare that 
means that this next economic crisis is going to be born again by the people who have been most mm-hmm. tragically impacted. Yeah. Um, and it's the same, it's the same story over and over again. I love that, Martha. I hadn't really thought about the, the food system. I mean, it's one of those things that once you start seeing it as a framework, the way that sort of the, the paradigm of racist dehumanizing exploitation in the service of profit, right? Which is of course like the original economic paradigm of our yeah. society. Um, just how it, it really impoverishes, impro- excuse me, it really impoverishes us all. Yes. That again. The, the racist um, paradigm uh, of exploitation in the name of profit um, ultimately impoverishes most people, right? And it's it's funny, right? I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't massive disparities between white people right. and people of color and, and different communities of color within that broad group of people of color. But I am saying that except for wealthy white people, this economic system is not serving us. And that one of the core ways from the founding of this nation that sort of the plantation class, right? The, the people who, who, for whom the economic system is totally set up for their own benefit at the detriment um, of, of other people, you know, they have profited from keeping the people um, divided. Um, and that kind of divide and conquer strategy, you know, is is obviously core to our politics today, right? We still have the majority of white Americans voting for a party that just wants to gut healthcare and cut taxes on the wealthy and corporations and not invest in anything um, that yep. we all need and not address climate change, which is already costing us like two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. You know, I mean, it's it's it is a politics of self sabotage, but it's propped up by um, you know, the illusion of a, of a racial bargain. Um, so it's not that white people aren't doing better than people of color in this effed up system. It's just that they are doing worse than they could be in, in a better system, right? Well, and imagine how well we could all be doing if every kid had access to yeah. the education that they deserve and how, I mean, that that is something that that's wind in everybody's sails. That's, we don't lose anything if all the kids get what they need. And on that note, um, many of our listeners may recognize you, Heather, from a video interview that you did a while back that went viral. And so we actually want to play it um, for our listeners. So give me a moment. I'm going to queue up this video. So hang tight, y'all. I haven't seen this in a while either. We also have videos of you we found long ago from high school and college that we're going to queue up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> My high school musical, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, oh, favorite. <laughs> All right, let's go. I was hoping that your guest can help me change my mind about some things. Um, I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. And the reason it is, is something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. Um, when I open up the papers, I get very discouraged at what young black males are doing to each other and the, the crime rates. I understand that they live in an environment with a lot of drugs. You have to get money for drugs, and, and, it, and it's a deep issue that goes beyond that. But when you, I have these different fears, and I don't want my fears to come true, you know. So I try to avoid that, and I and I come off as being prejudice, but I just have fears. I don't like to be forced to like people. I like to be led to like people through example. And what can I do to change, you know, to be a better American? Heather McKee. Thank you so much for being honest um, and for opening up this conversation because it's simply one of the most important ones we have to have in this country. You know, we are not a country that is united um, because we are all one racial group that all descended from one uh, tribe in one community. That is actually, uh, I think, what makes this country beautiful, but it's our challenge. We are the most multiracial, multiethnic, wealthy democracy in the world. And so asking the question you asked, 
how do I get over my fears and my prejudices, is the question that all of us, and I will say people of all races and ethnicities and backgrounds, hold these fears and prejudices. Most of them are actually unconscious, right? You'll say to yourself, I'm not prejudiced, but of course we all have them. And so your ability to just say, this is what I have, I have these fears and prejudices and I want to get over them, is one of the most powerful things that we can do right now at this moment in our history, so thank you. So what can you do? Get to know black families who are not all, uh, and not even any majority, are um, involved in crime and gangs. Uh, turn off the news at night because we know from, sorry Greta, <laughs> keep, keep the news not, open in the morning. But <laughs> we're not delivering the news, so <laughs> <Yes>. it's fine. <laughs> um, because we know that actually uh, nightly news and many media markets that have been studied actually over-represents African-American crime and under-represents crimes that happen uh, by, by white people. Um, uh, join a church if you are a religious person that is uh, a black church or a church that is uh, interracial. Um, start to read about the history of, uh, of the African-American community in this country. Okay, so I'm going to pause this right here. Uh, for our listeners, we will post this video so you can catch the whole thing. And um, I've watched that video a few times. Um, I've had quite a few reactions to it. The first one for me, though, is is you and the grace and light that is coming out of you. I mean, I don't, I have no poker face and you only had light and love shining. And talk to us about that moment. What was going through your head um, as you're hearing these things that like. Very triggering. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, it's funny. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, it's funny guys, I haven't watched that in so long. You know, it, it is obviously, it's a story that I've told since then, you know, regularly and, but, it, you know, I just haven't watched it in a long time. And, and I think, you know, that, that happened in August of 2016, right? So it was before, right before. Donald Trump became the president of the United States. It was like during that, you know, intensely charged summer right after, um, uh, the killings in Dallas and Minneapolis. And I mean, you know, of course that's every year is something like that, but it, it was a really intense racially charged time. Um, uh, but, you know, it was not four years into Trump's presidency, right? So it's, it is very different. Um, and I, I don't know that I would have quite as much grace now that I, as I did then, I'm gonna be honest, you know? Um, that said, I think it was, you know, there's a part of me that's like a teacher, right? You know, so it's almost like if someone asked you that in the classroom or something and came to you sort of hat in hand in that way, um, you know, my reaction was, he's asking for help, mm -hmm. you know? It's not my job to help, but like, it's kind of no skin off my back to help, right? Like, I, you know, I can say this right now. Um, and I, I wasn't triggered. I really wasn't. Like, I really, like, I didn't get hot under the collar. Like, I definitely winced when he was, like, you know, talking about, like, you know, Black men and drugs and, you know, crime and everything. But I, I, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't get emotionally upset. Like, it was a true, like, I stayed like this the whole time. I really did. And then I also, when he said, I want to be a better American, to me, that was just, like, you know, it shifted something also. There was, like, this big opening. It was, like, you know, some part of him knew that he had to base down his prejudice to be a better American. And that's like a really, you know, I think we all agree with that. Um, and I also, you know, we were in such a moment of denial, right? I mean, you know, this is like two years into the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we were, you know, we were actually, most importantly, probably we were in the last year of the Obama administration and there was so much denial among white people, you know, on the left and right about how significant and widespread racism was. And so for this white guy to be like, I'm prejudiced and I'm racist, like that was actually helpful to me at that time politically when there was just, there was just so much denial. We were sort of still in this era of colorblindness. Um, obviously we've moved, you know, broken through that in many ways now, four years later. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um 
with that said, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier. We are at this sort of point post-election where we have broken through things. There is a different awareness around racism. I'm just going to call it different, um, maybe more polarized, mm-hmm. however you want to describe it. What would you say to folks about pulling from a well of generosity? How can we have that? Because I believe we need it to be able to be moving forward. And it's even amongst the three of us, it's been hard from us for us to talk about having that generosity. I mean, ultimately, my kind of North Star on these questions is who's really profiting from the hate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's not Gary from North Carolina who's right. lived alone with his dog and watches Fox News all day, you know, like it's it's actually not serving him. Um, he's just buying a story that's being aggressively marketed to him. And so I serve, I reserve my anger uh, and, uh, you know, strategic <laughs> um, violence. Uh, and by that, I mean, just wanting to take them out and silence them right now. Physically, yes. <laughs> you know, like my my fury, um, my desire to to have these forces in our society disappear. It's not Gary's of the world, right? It's Rupert Murdoch, whose family is worth seventeen billion dollars, and decided to create a like society crushing propaganda machine on two continents. You know, like <laughs> that's actually where the problem is. Um, so you know, I just think of it more like. We're, we're in a long con, right? And there are a lot of people who are being very conned. There are short-term psychological and even material reasons why the con works. Um, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't be held responsible for being hateful and derisive towards their you know, fellow human beings and voting for policies that do unconscionable things to our families and our children. Um, but, I, you know, I just, I guess I keep looking upstream, right? Um, as I was taught, you know. That's, it's, it's incredibly generous. Um, and we, so 70 million people voted for Donald Trump after mm-hmm. they had witnessed the last four years. And I actually totally agree with you that, um, and I hadn't thought about it, in terms of aggressive marketing, um, but that's exactly what it is. And and we live in Texas, we're all in Texas, and it is one of five majority minority states, though looking at our representation, you would be shocked to find that out because, mm-hmm. um, because those nefarious forces in Texas are so unbelievably powerful. Um, and we have things in statewide races like no campaign finance finance limits. Like they can just dump trunkfuls of money into into maintaining power, and and they do. Mm-hmm. And I saw somewhere that David Koch said he regretted the divide that had been caused. I'm like, <laughs> spent forty years and. And, and then in the article, it quoted that he'd spent $2.8 million on in campaigns. And I was like, dude has spent so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I digress. <laughs> I think, um, and this is like maybe more of a politics question or maybe an economics question, but how do we, how do we start to, as, as righteous moms, how do we start to overcome the nefarious few um, in service of the many? And so that a state like Texas can have real representation as a majority minority state, like that makes us pretty badass Mm -hmm. and leading the country to where the country will land in 2040. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do believe, you know, Texas is an example of, demography not being destiny for many, many reasons that I'm sure you guys have talked about on on air before. Um, But so is California, right? I mean, California is so progressive in so many ways. And just now in the 2020 election, some of the most racist uh, and self-sabotaging 
ballot initiatives, you know, that came from the kind of like white backlash era in the 80s, late 70s, 80s and 90s in in California as the demographics were changing, right? The 187 and 13 and 209, these are all numbers of propositions that stood for an attack on affirmative action, an attack on um, the state's revenue, this like crazy property tax um, ban essentially that has, you know, gutted education funding in California, you know, a massive anti-immigrant um, ballot initiative. You know, two of those were about to be overturned or, you know, um, on the ballot to be overturned in meaningful ways, you know, to like have more revenue for schools and to have, you know, public institutions be able to consider diversity. And they were voted down in a state that went for Joe Biden, you know, by millions of votes. So I do think we need to have a relentlessly loud message that takes on the belief in a hierarchy of human value, which is kind of the, what I see as the core of the racist story in America that takes on the zero sum, the idea that we're kind of just pitted against one another for, for dwindling resources. Um, the forces of, of white resentment and grievance um, of a sense that our, our better days are behind us and that we're all just kind of trying to get ours from a sinking ship and that, you know, more people of color will, will mean just less for white people um, is just so strong. And it's also, you know, it's one that cuts many ways. I mean, I've talked about this with Christina and many of my friends in Texas. It's, you know, it's a majority minority state, as you would say, only if, you know, brown people are really brown and if they're white Hispanic, right? If the Census Bureau allows people to say they are, then it's not. Um, and so, you know, that, and, and so this question of sort of, do you choose whiteness? And by whiteness, I don't just mean like a skin color. I mean, a, an orientation towards, um, you know, towards, communities of color towards the, the commonwealth, towards the public um, that is, you know, ultimately a, a quite a selfish one and a one that sees racial competition as, you know, a core strategy of maintaining dominance. Um, and the jury's still out on that. Even the black brown divide of, you know, black people seeing native born black people seeing immigrants, you know, of all races as, as competition, you know, it's, it's a real like paradigm. Do we, do we stay with competition or do we have community? And I do think that um, the, the core of like love and sacrifice that is involved in being a mother is, you know, one of the highest values or virtues that, you know, progressives need to really tap into um, and organize around. So I want to actually ask you about uh, your son. He's yeah. now, right? He's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I want to know for you, like you've been deep in the trenches, thinking politically, thinking about policy, thinking about storytelling, thinking about how you get people to see their common interests. And, you know, our kids are close to the same age. And when I had Santi, like it blew my mind. It just changed like, oh my God, I can feel things I never felt before. <laughs> you know, it was like the world I'd been seeing it in black and white. And now I can see it in color. And um, it also made me connect to people's experiences in a way that I couldn't, like intellectually I understood, but emotionally at that deeper level, I could not understand until I had my own child. And I'm wondering for you, your son, how he's changed you in this work. And like, when you say that we connect, like, how do we do that? You know, you're now one of our righteous mamas here. Like, how do we do that as mamas that you're getting to shape our children who then shape the world like your own mother did, but then also connecting with other mothers to use this righteous moral courage to try and transform the world for our babies. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I would, I would have said two months ago that I felt like we were doing that as a multiracial coalition of women who were, you know, um, just delivering politically, right? For a more progressive vision who would, you know, 
been at the forefront of the resistance, who have been at the forefront of the movement for Black Lives, who have, you know, created a massive gender gap in the 2018 midterm elections to put more women in federal office than ever in history. Like, you know, like I, I think this last four years has been a women's movement moment in every single way. And I think many, many millions of white women have been very radicalized by um, the experience of this era um, in a way that was like, okay, there is a sort of, feminist, you know, cross-racial solidarity, feminist consciousness that's rising, you know, for sure. Um, and I will say that um, the fact that still the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump in, in 2020 is a little bit of a buzzkill on that, you know, triumphalism. That said, the majority of white women did not vote for Donald Trump in um, the battleground states, if I'm not mistaken. Texas Boy, they did in Texas. Oh yeah, we have just 38% of white women voted for uh, a Biden Harris for Biden. Well, I'm not surprised about that. I mean, it's still Texas, right? I mean, I mean in general, right? Southern states, like that's a that's a lot. That's a, that's a lot to it's overcome. A lot. It's a real it's a lot. A lot of programming to overcome. Um so I do think it's important. Um I do think it's possible. I do think it takes you know, real deliberate organizing. And then in terms of your question about how um, my son Riaz has changed me, it's totally been profound, I agree. Um, I am much more, you know, it's like, it's a little bit like what M Michelle Obama said about the presidency and Barack Obama. It's like, you know, becoming president doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. I definitely felt that. I was like, this is who I was sort of always going to be. I just, um, you know, didn't have this like pull into my my full self. Um, it's made me more patient with people who are weak, right? Um, um, but it's made me like totally impatient with abuse by strong people, right? <laughs> um, you know, um, it's, it's made me super focused on the climate in a way that I wasn't before. Like I, you know, thought it was important and, you know, was really glad environmentalists were working on it, you know, but now I feel like it has this just heart-stopping urgency. Um, I can't watch zombie movies anymore, really. I used to, I used to be like, pretty into pretty violent stuff and um i also see you just corrected yourself from saying shit right there because you're like I totally mom show <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I did i totally did i was like yeah. <laughs> um, um like i used to watch the walking dead and i was like oh it's so cool to like have all of your loved ones in constant danger of being dismembered in front of you and i'm like i don't i'm not interested in that anymore <laughs> on a um, personal level heather um you were talking about how there's been division that's been fomented, right? Whether it's between white or black. And then you mentioned earlier, even between black and brown and immigrant communities. And, and to make it more personal, um, I understand your, your, your husband, your partner is Pakistani. For me, my husband is black and I'm Indian. And it makes me look at the intersectionality of my children's identity very differently and gives me a different awareness on racism. You know, I've, I've faced it being a visible Muslim woman, but then when I think about what it means for my child, mm -hmm. the, the aperture opens up, right? And what, what sort of comes up from you for you now that you have this, this child, right? Which is an intersection yeah. um, of, of your identity, your husband's identity growing up in this, this point in the world. Um, so my husband is um, Pakistani-American. His mother was Pakistani. Um, his father was actually white. Um, so he himself is already a blended person with like two vastly different in many ways cultures growing up that were both very strong, like a, a very like waspy dad and a like cultural ambassador of Pakistan mom, right? So it was not like, oh, you know, we sort of met somewhere in the middle. It was like, you know, um, and, um, and he was very close to them and very shaped by them. Um, and um, his name is Qasim Shepherd, right? So he's like, you know, just a, uh, um, 
not super practicing, but you know, raised somewhat Muslim um, Pakistani man um, with like a, a wasp's privilege for the most part, but also kind of like a double consciousness of a person of color. So it's, and so he's very, he interestingly says that he's quite, that it's a certain kind of privilege to both have like the material trappings of intergenerational wealth of a white person um, and have that like confidence and, you know, sort of status, but also to feel like a person of color sometimes or most of the time so that you're kind of like, um, you know, <laughs> you can like, you can code switch, right? Um, I, it has been really interesting and, um, you know, we've definitely had to like create a racial narrative together that makes sense for all of us. Um, and then my son, you know, he's two, his name is Riaz, which has a meaning in the Pakistani language in Urdu and as well in, in Arabic. And then his middle names are Shah, <coughs> which means King, which is named after Dr. King, and then Hassan, which is my brother, um, and then Shepherd McGee, which are his last name, my husband's last name and my last name. Um, and we are- Every letter of the alphabet in his name, it's so- <laughs> My actually, no, no Q, um, but we could, Qasim's mother's name, last name was Qureshi. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, we were like, we're going to have this Blackistani son, and that's just going to be like who he is, and it's going to be this specific thing that he's going to make in the world. Um, you know, it's, we have not talked about race with our son yet. Um, he's two in like two months. Um, I mean, he, you know, he sees signs on the street and he says Black Lives Matter, but he doesn't know, you know, I'm not like, this is about you people being killed by the police, you know? Like, I'm just like, I'm just gonna wait. Um, I actually didn't even really tell him about the election at all. He doesn't know who Donald Trump is. Like, I'm just like, I have no interest in you knowing who he is. But on Saturday, um, you know, the day, November 7th, which was actually my husband's birthday when um, the race was called, and, you know, Brooklyn, where we live, like erupted in joy, like end of World War II type of joy. My son was like, whew, like he felt it, like he was just so ecstatic. And I was like, oh, right. Like the people around you, your community has been like a state of anxiety and depression your whole life, right? He's only two. And so he was like, something has shifted and I love it. And he, you know, he didn't go to sleep till like one in the morning when we were dancing in the streets. It was so great. <laughs> Um, the orange monster has been defeated. You know, that's like at a two-year-old level. <laughs> and his, his, one of his good friends, his upstairs neighbor, who's four, like is totally traumatized by the idea of Trump, like sees his face and starts to cry on TV. And it's like, my seven-year-old's allowed to shoot the bird at Donald Trump signs. <laughs> I'm sure you that. know what? Go ahead, baby. Yes, you can do that. You know, to your point earlier, um, I'll just share a really short personal story. My my daughter started daycare when she was around two and um, you know, Black History Month in February, they did a little unit and, you know, they're reading stories about Martin Luther King and whatnot. And my daughter comes home and she's telling us about it. And then she turns around and says, so mommy would be in the front of the bus and daddy and I would be in the back of the bus. And I had to stop and be like, oh, that's not how it works. <laughs> it was so cute. Um, and I just thought, okay, like she picked up something. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just interesting uh, what kids pick up and, and how they process everything. And even at such a young age. And, um, you know, with that said, I do want to ask you for one I'll question. Say, just, sorry, on that, you know, just, um, no, it's interesting. He, my son knows about, like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. And like, he actually knows about uh, struggle, like the, you know, like stories of struggle. Um, and he's fascinated by them and drawn to them. There was this one illustrated children's book about Harriet Tubman that was like, talked about her being beaten as a kid. And they kept wanting to like, go back to that page. He was just sort of like, whoa, like there's this sort of, you know, like he wants the drama. And he's like, oh, they would beat a little girl, and, you know. Um, but he doesn't know that it's about skin color yet. Mm. 
know, he has so many people in his life who are darker than me or lighter than me and darker than him and lighter than him and stuff like that. He doesn't know that like those like adventure stories sort of, right? Like those stories of great heroes and struggle are about something as like to him as yet inconsequential as skin color. You know, when I listen to you talk, you're so much more engaging than other folks I've heard talk about policy. And I just have to ask, and I mean that in the most beautiful compliment, <laughs> was not a compliment. Oh, that was very nice, thank you. Um, but I, you know, as I was reading about you, I know you have a background and you were interested in theater and hey. writing. And over the course of your career, you've worked on, you know, credit card debt, mortgage debt, student debt, um, consumer protection, and, and you're so focused on economic policy now. And your mother was a teacher right, um, in the most basic sense and, you know, started in sort of this place of sort of medical illness and maybe moving towards like social illness and the structural focus on that. Talk to us about that progression. And, and actually, I believe in listening to you, all of those seeds from your background matter in making you effective and working with folks. And because um, if we're going to do this work, it's to be effective. And I believe all of those things in your background are contributing to that. And, and do you see it that way? Do you see that you approach this work differently than other folks? That's interesting. I mean, you know, you can't, it's hard to peel the layers of your own onion in so many ways, but, um, and I know many other, mostly women who are policy wonks who are equally kind of effective and human and, and aren't, you know, total um, sort of antisocial people who can't communicate. Um, uh, but there are a lot of antisocial people who can't communicate who do work in economic policy. Um, you know, I, yeah, I did, when I was growing up, I loved to act and I had a huge imagination. I used to come home and write stories. That was like what I did when I came home from school. And um, I wrote plays and I acted in plays and, um, um, that all of that is very important to me or has been in my life. Um, just the, the sort of empathetic um, journey of going into another character and of sort of um, really immersing yourself in the perspective of another human being. I think it's a really effective, important um, way to shape your brain early on. Um, and I enjoy it a lot. I have like a deep well for empathy. For personally, I just, there are very few people where I'm like, nah, nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're out. <laughs> I kind of just love humans. I think they're fascinating and, you know, beautiful. Um, I have to say, I love humans too. Like, <laughs> I really. Christina's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. And, and sometimes I do think it can make a little bit of a sucker out of me, uh -huh. um, but I wouldn't trade my suckerdom right. for, um, for sort of a hopeful view of humanity and what is possible from all of us. And I think that you, um, you like bring the smarts with the presentation and are able to like deliver these these hard stories to like on paper they're hard but in your hands they you're a great translator of mm. hard things and I appreciate that so much as like I have to say I'm actually a fangirl and when <laughs> Christina said you're you're gonna be here I was like oh, shit really <laughs> um so I um I just I really appreciate that and think um, thank you for sharing this time with us tonight. I know that you have a hard stop at seven. So we are going to, we're going to wrap it up and say thank you and revel in gratitude and can't wait to read your book. Thank you so much. I got to get my son to sleep. I got to read him some, um, some adventure story about peril and struggle. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <Lock him> in. <laughs> Well, give him a hug and thank you for spending the evening with us. And honestly, like when we were thinking about doing this podcast, it was all about building that world for our kids. And it was about 
them being able to be full human beings and accepted and protected and that intersection of race and class that are tied like we're not just about identity and representation but we're about real equality and an abundance mindset and that's exactly what you write about and so and talk about so we are grateful and hopeful people follow your work and buy buy this woman's book because I think it's going to sell out in the first round of printing before it's even out because it's so fucking good so get in line get your copy um and I'm going to be doing an audio book too so um oh cool Oh, and your voice is very soothing. It is. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much. This is a beautiful project. Um, I love it. And um, I'm so happy to have been a part of it for one night. Thank you so much. Three Righteous Mamas. This is so cool. Thank Three you Righteous Mamas. Signing off. So I have so much love and appreciation for... Heather and the work and how she speaks to it. Because when I think about, especially us here in Texas, you know, you mentioned, I think Martha, in one of our questions is that, you know, so much of the anxiety and rise of Trump is a fear and anxiety of a changing demographic of the country. And that, that place that when we operate from a place of scarcity, where it's only how I can survive versus how do we thrive? as a community, as a people, as a country, then we're always limiting what's possible for us. And so much of that comes home here to Texas because we're already majority people of color. And so for me, being able to talk and understand and have the tools about how racism hurts all folks, obviously the most directed impact is on people of color, like that's without a doubt, but it is also used to take away from all of us, right? And being able to speak and understand that I think is so critical for all of our kids. Um, and so I'm just grateful to have her voice and try and figure out, well, how do we do, do that and talk like that? Because for me, sometimes I do feel like we're either talking just about class or we're just talking about race versus we're talking about building a society and a country that is economically just for everyone and for it to be for everyone, you have to talk about race because it hasn't been for everyone. It wasn't designed to be, and we want to make it designed to be. That part really struck me where racism hurts everyone. It hurts everyone. And she shares so many examples in her book. Um, And if you listen to her TED talk about how we as society are harmed period and how racism is the fuel for greed and these things that are hurting all of us. I mean, there's no clean line. There's, there's no way to, to say, Oh, I'm separate from this. And that includes people of color and black people. Like all of us have it inside of us, right? It's like part of the air we breathe. I think the thing she said earliest hit me, why can't we have nice things? And it makes me think about some of our previous conversations where people are stuck between a rock and a hard place and racism put us there collectively, right? And so like, we've got to address it if we're gonna work ourselves out of these corners we've been painted into so that we have good choices that we can make and not like this crappy choice versus that you know, cruddy choice. It's, it's a lot to take in, right? A lot. Well, I have a lot to say about like, there were several things that she said that really hit me. One of them being um, when she became a mother, it, it revealed who she was. And that was like, I really had that experience too. When I became a mother, it, um, it, it changed everything about how I saw the world. And then I think one of the things that really, um, that I've really started paying attention to with the urgency of um, the wildfires that we have, the hurricanes that we have, um, the climate crisis that is breathing down our kids' necks is that any, any kid that is coming up these days that 
and this is true, this has always been true, but this is the collective punishment of racism is that I am certain that we missed and didn't care for a kid that could have solved cancer or for a kid that would have produced, you know, some amazing symphony or, or a kid that could just be a great accountant. Um, but because we have neglected so many of the kids in this country for so long and so many of the systems that care for these kids in this country for so long in Texas in particular, we deprive ourselves of the talent that is born to this country. And that is criminal, truly criminal. Um, and so it's for all of our kids and for, for all of their futures that, that they deserve this world. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I think if we can just, you know, I, uh, I think for us three, like our value set that we really are, whatever I want for my child, I want for your child. Yes. Whatever is good enough for my child, I think is, you know, should be good enough for every child. And that there is success in that collective success. So I loved having her on and I'm, um, hopeful that people will read her book because I think it is transformative for this country. So for our call to action, one of the things I took away from our conversation today was our issue is not with the individual or the, the Garys from North Carolina, that we have to look to the structures and where profit is happening. Thank you for listening to Three Righteous Mamas on behalf of the Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sarah Tatvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at texassignal.com.